Welcome to another installment of A Pushing History. I'm the scriptwriter Nicholas Jacob, and today I have Charlie Hale and Logan Carinano. Today, we'll be, we'll be discussing the ins and outs of the Roaring Twenties period in American history. More specifically, we will be looking at speakeasies in American urban culture. The 1920s, or the Roaring Twenties, was an interesting period because the U.S. began to develop a new and unique culture. They had just ended World War I in 1918, and many felt depressed from the heavy burden and hardships faced through the war, while soldiers were eager to return to a more prosperous life. The United States government promoted a policy of isolationism, which essentially keeps the U.S. out of foreign affairs, helping them avoid conflicts with other countries. This made them focus on boosting the morale of the country, or as President Harding said, a return to normalcy. In this period, we will see a great deal of urbanization where Americans flocked to rapidly expanding cities to experience endless opportunities and truly live the American dream within a period of newfound hope. A little over 50% of the people lived in urban areas. This drastic shift, as shown in the 1920 census, compared to earlier centuries, was the opposite of what agrarians like Thomas Jefferson had envisioned for America. This urbanization was primarily due to the economic opportunities that cities provided. The Industrial Revolution allowed for new jobs. In, the, in cities, when people wanted to go out or party, they would go to speakeasies. Speakeasy was an illegal bar that sold alcohol. They got their name as you would have to speak easy or softly when entering so the neighbors and police would not bust these establishments. So speakeasy started popping up as a direct result of the Volstead Act or the 18th Amendment, which in 1919 officially prohibited the sale and distribution of alcohol. They fueled the enthusiasm of the American people and their defiance of such restrictions. You know, Mark Twain predicted it to the T, stating, Prohibition only drives drunkenness behind doors and into dark places and does not cure or, or even diminish it. Prohibition was meaningless to the American people and only made situations worse. It was truly ironic that a moral law would create such immorality. That's a good point. With many saloons and clubs shut down from prohibition, speakeasies were hidden underground in secretive places in the city. At its peak, there were 32,000 speakeasies in New York alone. And these speakeasies were often owned by mob bosses or mafia members. These organized crime groups were highly profitable, and some made millions a month just selling alcohol. They illegally obtained alcohol by importing from other countries and making it themselves in illegal distilleries. They even sponsored people to make homemade alcohol. Though much of this alcohol was of low quality. Gin became to be known as bathtub gin, as makers would dilute it in their bathtub. Improperly made, alcohol poisoned around 10,000 people in the 1920s. The profit of the bootleggers made it hard to shut them down, as they could easily pay off fines or bribe police officers, making the whole system corrupt. You'd be surprised how well organized crime groups were run. They had an efficient and effective business model. However, this did contribute to increasing violence in the city as it created rebellious drinking culture. Also, the bootlegging industry was extremely dangerous as rival competitors would sabotage or even murder each other to gain money. According to the Bureau of Justice and Statistics, there was over a 70% increase in the homicide rate after prohibition. So let's talk about what happened in these speakeasies. Before speakeasies, bars 
to discourage single women from coming, but at speakeasies, they were welcomed. It really helped create and promote the idea of new women in the 20s. Women, also called flappers, were young, energetic, and embraced partying in rejection of previous moral standards. They promoted freedom in all ways, including sexually. The sense of freedom was a result of women's rights expanding in the progressive era. Things like universal suffrage with the 19th Amendment and the legalization of contraceptives helped promote not only a mindset, but a reality of freedom. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, organizer of the Seneca Falls National Convention and women, women's civil rights activist, once said, the best protection a woman can have is courage. Since 1848, when the women's rights movement began, women had been fighting the social norm of their past, tied to their husbands as property, working tirelessly against adversity to gain the right of nationality in their own behalf. Their toil had paid off, and women were ready to celebrate their societal leverage. These flappers were known for the dresses, which were scandalous for the time. The dresses were calf-revealing, had lower necklines, and promoted dance by being slim and straight. These women used the makeup and favored shorter hairstyles. This new look could even be seen as androgynous. These nonchalant attitudes came at a cost, though. One of the most prominent flappers, Clara Bow, becoming famous during the silent film era, ended her career addicted to sleeping pills, depressed, suicidal, and was later diagnosed with schizophrenia. Nearing her end, she stated, a sex symbol is a heavy load to carry when one is tired, hurt, and bewildered, warning other women of the era's burden. Also, a cultural and moral divide developed between these people and their parents. Their parents had traditional standards of the Victorian age, where women were expected to act with etiquette. They were outraged to see their children drinking, smoking, practicing sexual freedom, and dancing. Speaking of dancing, this period had many new dances, and speakeasies even promoted it. Hollywood movies, books, and magazines created many dance crazies that many wanted to try. These dances were less strict and more free-flowing. People spent hours together memorizing these dances like the Charleston, the Shimmy, and the Black Bottom. Dances were marathons, human endurance contests, where couples would dance continuously for hours on end for a cash prize. And, unlike today, dancing was viewed as one of the main social activities and was a way to express happiness. What really promoted these dances was jazz music. Jazz is more freeform as it emphasized improvisation while including rhythm and harmony. Jazz includes instruments like the saxophone, trumpet, trombone, piano, bass, drums, and guitar. Many conservative values saw jazz as barbaric and immoral at the time. This music was created and performed by African Americans. They played in front of mainly white audiences at speakeasies. This music is what brought together the whole atmosphere of a speakeasy. The owners of the speakeasies sought for highly skilled musicians to attract more customers. This helped launch the careers of self-made musicians such as Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington. These African American musicians would go to highly competitive cities like New York and Chicago hoping to pursue music as a career. The rise of jazz music traces back to the Harlem Renaissance, where hundreds of thousands of African Americans migrated north to escape the prejudice of Jim Crow laws in the white supremacist South. This was called the Great Migration. The city of Harlem, New York, 
became a center for the black community. Black people went to Harlem to live freely and express their talents as they had been oppressed for so long. They embraced their own culture by creating their own artistic and literary movement. The idea of the New Negro arose where African Americans were racially proud and embraced their culture freely. Jazz was born as a part of the movement. Another thing that influenced social life in the 1920s was the radio. Hundreds of thousands of radio stations popped up in the decade and brought in new things like sports, news, and even a certain court case in Tennessee. As America's economic welfare skyrocketed, innovation like radios became affordable in the growing middle class as Americans began to have expendable money for non-essential items. Radios soon became a staple in the American home. By 1934, 60% of the nation's households had radios. Radios also became a new medium and resource for advertisers who, would, who could spread their messages to people instantly, unlike before where newspapers and magazines were only used. Talk about communication. Radio spread the culture like wildfire. The country was more unified than ever before. From the announcement of Gertrude Elderly successfully being the first woman to swim across the English Channel in 1926 to Babe Ruth's home runs, captured through the live broadcast baseball games, Americans from coast to coast knew about it. Because of the power of the radio, it was truly revolutionary. Other innovations in the 20s like the Band-Aid vacuum cleaner, television, electric automatic traffic signal, electric blender, electric washing machine, electric refrigerator, electric toaster, and even the first car called the Ford Model T heavily influenced current day society and the everyday things we take for granted. So we're starting to see America become absolutely consumed and indulged into this new identity. This period was marked by consumerism which, to a new middle class, created irresponsibly evolving, overspending, and the usage of credit. America was extremely vulnerable at this point. The roar ended in a crash, literally. In October of 1929, the stock market plummeted. Share prices in New York stock simply collapsed, leaving America in a panic, making the start of the Great Depression. As investors, as investors and consumer spending decreased, about 15 million workers were laid off by their failing companies, creating an unprecedented poverty rate. Not only was there an economic decay, but the moral decay of the era was a problem as well. Fundamentalists, based on Protestant evangelical principles based on the Bible, created a divide from the immorality of the time. In the Scopes Monkey Trial, a Tennessee high school biology teacher opposed a Tennessee law called the Butler Act, which, supported by fundamentalists, stated teaching of human evolution was illegal in a state-funded school. This trial, more importantly, raised publicity for the growing anti-sentiment and condemning of sinful practices or practices not supported by religious means, making the 20s seem like a disgrace to a country founded on the basis and ideals of Christianity. Disaster was inevitable. As Gordon Hinckley once said, you can't build a great building on a weak foundation. Thank you for listening. I'm Charlie Hale. I'm Logan Cardinato. And I'm Nicholas Jacob. Thank you.